Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Pastor and author Tim Keller uh, once said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. I thought of that because we have these readings set before us today, and you might know that in our church, we don't just pick and choose readings every week. We follow a set a structure called the lectionary, and what that does is it's guardrails. It, it, it makes sure that the pastor is not just picking and choosing their favorite scriptures, and it exposes the entire congregation to the whole of God's word. But sometimes we come to readings that are uh, difficult, <laughs> awkward. Uh, I don't know if you listened to the readings we just had over the last five minutes, but they were full of blood and fire and judgment and sin, and that was the New Testament. <laughs> Not to mention Isaiah, and I believe it was a decree of destruction that we heard about. Um, yet when... Uh, the reader finished and said, this is the word of the Lord. You dutifully and wonderfully said, thanks be to God. Because we come to attend to God's word. Uh, not what we want it to say or assume that it says. Uh, we come to God's word humbly to listen and to learn. And sometimes we're delighted by what we see. Sometimes we don't know what to do with it. And that's a place for prayer and study and to sit with it. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews 12 again today. We looked at the first part of Hebrews 12 uh, last Sunday. And even with all of the fire and the blood and all of that, I want to tell you, um, this is a passage of good news. Uh, this is a passage about the gospel. And it's a passage about the presence of God. And I would just say, how you think about the presence of God, that's key to understanding whether these readings that we've had today are good news or not. Let's talk about the presence of God as the preacher in Hebrews uh, paints it. Um, and again, we are jumping in at the end of Hebrews. Um, and this is likely an ancient sermon, so we're kind of catching the tail end. And there's a lot that this preacher is assuming that we both know from what's come first in Hebrews and really what's come through the entire scriptures. Um, this was a congregation steeped in the Old Testament, and they knew that story. And so this preacher can paint uh, with some broad strokes, assuming points of resonance that sometimes I'm going, what, what's he saying? Uh, what is that illusion? Uh, what's he talking about? What's that an echo of? And so he begins here. It's an awkward start to Hebrews 12, wasn't it? Um, actually, our reader for today earlier this week said, can I use a different version? This makes no sense. <laughs> he comes at it kind of sideways. He starts, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. 
Um, that's a very weird way of saying you're not in Mount Sinai anymore. All of those descriptions are from the book of Exodus, um, and he's assuming that we have this story. So just a little bit of context. If you remember, in the book of Exodus, where are God's people? They're enslaved. Uh, they're enslaved in Egypt, and God hears their cry. He sends Moses as his messenger who confronts Pharaoh. Uh, fast forward through the entire movie, The Prince of Egypt. <laughs> they're freed. They're in the wilderness. They cross the Red Sea. Boom, they come to Mount Sinai. This looks like where they've been going the entire time. And it is, uh, it is spectacle, it is worship, it is terror. Up on the mountain on Mount Sinai, God tells Moses, hey, let the people know I'm coming down. And when I come down, it's going to overwhelm you. And you need to consecrate and cleanse yourself to be ready for when I come down because I'm coming down and I'm holy. And there is something in you that's going to respond to that in a way that is not helpful. That's what it says. If even a beast touches the mountain, boom, uh, put to death. And so you have this cacophony of light and sight and noise with the presence of God coming down. The words in the Old Testament, they're, they're struggling to stretch and soar and describe what was it like when there was fire on the mountain and God Almighty came down to Mount Sinai. And he says, that's not where you are. There's a different mountain that you have come to, and there's a new understanding, uh, not new, a further understanding of God's presence because of what Jesus has done. And therefore, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You've come someplace else. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And the central question I have for you today is being in the presence of God a good thing or a bad thing? And the scriptures, it seems to depend there's some factors that help us understand is God's presence, uh, God's presence is always a good thing in the sense that God is always good, but is it something that is safe for us or something that is deadly and terrifying for us? And Hebrews is just drawing this distinction. It says there was a time when God's people came to Mount Sinai and they experienced his presence in a way that was negative. He goes, I want to contrast that with now your experience of the living God being something positive and beautiful and still glorious, but life-giving. And this is important because this particular congregation, um, I mentioned that they knew the Old Testament very well. Um, it's likely that these are Jewish converts. And, and there's a lot of uh, external pressure and persecution. There's inner turmoil and doubt. Where this congregation is going... I'm having some second thoughts. I'm having some buyer's remorse on this whole Christianity thing. After all, what we knew was sturdy, and it was good, and it worked for us in Judaism. When we came to Mount Sinai, it was wild, but we knew what we were getting into. And there's a sense in which they're being drawn back. There's a temptation to return and to not press on 
towards Mount Zion? That's a good question. Where are you going this morning? Are you heading back to Mount Sinai, back towards the law, back to when God's presence was terrifying and scary and we couldn't bear it? Or are you being pulled forward, fixing your eyes on Jesus, moving towards Mount Zion, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, eternal glory with God? This rapid-fire reminder, we just see the sensory overload in the Old Testament. Again, Exodus, there's fire and darkness, there's sound. They say no more. I think it's interesting that every time we think about the presence of God in the Old Testament, the presence of God in the Old Testament was that you could follow God, you could draw near to God, but not too close. If you got too close, it was dangerous. Uh, the priests, when they would go into the Holy of Holies, they wore little ropes like this so that if they fell down dead in God's presence, they could drag them out. Um, Isaiah, we read from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah gets a glimpse, a vision of God's glory filling the temple. And do you remember what he said? Woe is me, for I am unclean, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Uh, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He's undone. There's nothing flippant. There's nothing casual. Uh, you don't see him going, looking at the Lord in the temple and saying, Lord, you're welcome here. Come shift the atmosphere. So glad you made it. No, he is, there's an awe and, and there's a reverence in the Old Testament that is right and good. But now, the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews wants them to know something has happened to transform our experience of come this far but not too close to an invitation to come all the way in. Something has shifted in the presence of God from something that was terrifying and fatal to something beautiful and life-giving. And what's changed? Well, for the author of Hebrews, the, the great shift that has taken place is Jesus. Both his incarnation, his life, his love, his ministry, his miracles, especially his death and resurrection, that he sent the Spirit and that he is coming again. If you ask the author of Hebrews, uh, what's the difference in going to Mount Sinai and going to Mount Zion? he would say that God's people rightly followed Moses and followed the leading of the pillar of cloud and fire to Mount Sinai. And it was vague and it was, you know, we we're trying to figure out what's happening. But Mount Zion, you follow Jesus. That's what he said earlier. We follow the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us fix our eyes on him. And he has made it such that we can actually be invited into God's presence. He has made it such that uh, what would have uh, rendered us uh, dead in God's presence at Mount Sinai, not being cleansed, the presence of our sin, he has dealt with that in such a way that Zion is joy and glory and beauty and life-giving for us. Um, I, I won't dwell on here much, but it, it, it occurs to me that part of what is incredible is how God chooses to reveal himself in the pages of the scriptures. Uh, 
In the book of Exodus, uh, God introduces himself in fire and glory. And I don't want you to hear that as bad. That's a good thing. That's a true thing that God is, uh, is glorious. Actually, our passage ends with God is what? A consuming fire. But think about how God introduces himself and how God is revealed in the New Testament. We get a baby. All of that glory, all of that presence that was uh, unimaginable, there was sensory overload for God's people. Everything that terrified on Mount Sinai is then placed in a crib. God reveals himself in humility. As John said, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son uh, from the father. What a contrast. Fire on the mountain, baby in a crib. Not pitted against one another, but a further revelation of who God is. And he comes in humility. In Philippians, uh, Paul picks up on, not only did he come in humility, but he subjected himself to death, even death on a cross. And that's the big shift here. (laughs) That's the really big shift as we think about um, God's presence on Mount Sinai versus God's presence on Mount Zion. Because it isn't that God was glorious and now he's not. It's that God is always glorious and holy, and now we can come into his presence because Jesus has done something. He's done something for us and for our salvation that we can never do for ourselves. And so verses 22 through 24 paints this picture. Uh, You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And you can almost hear him say, why in the world would you go back to Sinai? when you're bound for Zion. And you have all this laying in front of you. Um, this is a, it's an incredible few verses. Just a picture that Hebrews paints. Um, we could probably spend a whole sermon on each phrase here. And it might be worth rereading these verses. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. Read them when you get a chance this week. Uh, see what intrigues you. See if one of these phrases is just a different uh, angle or or a different nuance as you think about uh, your worship of God and and what you know of God. I think when I read through this, what struck out to me was this idea of innumerable angels in festal gathering. Um, I don't spend much time thinking about angels, do you? Yet we're told when we come to this table that we're invited in in such a way that we join the saints and angels and archangels in proclaiming the hymn, the very anthem of heaven. And so we're part of this festal gathering of the angels. Every week we're invited in um, 
this is probably a little too technical, but I was struck by the fact that Hebrews, almost the entire book is rooted in the theology of the temple and of coming into the holy place and then coming into the holy of holies. And that's the very throne room of God where these angels sing. He, he switches it here to kind of go in this mountain direction, but it all kind of collides. You're invited into the holy of holies. You're invited to ascend the summit of Mount Zion. You come because a way has been made where there was no way before. And Hebrews says that's because of blood. That's because of blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. Again, he's assuming that we know the story of Cain and Abel from the book of Genesis. Cain kills his brother. And we're told that the blood of Abel cries out to God, cries out for justice, cries out saying, look what my brother has done. He says, now there's blood, and it cries out, and it cries out that justice has been satisfied. And it cries out saying, I know what my brother and sister have done, but look what I have done for them and for their salvation. So they can come. They can come in. It's no longer that we come this far but no closer. Now we're invited all the way in. And we can draw near and boldly approach the throne of grace and the very presence of God. Not because God's holiness is diminished, but because uh, the Lord Jesus has done this great work for us so that we can be holy, that we can be welcomed, that we can be admitted. Bishop N.T. Wright says, at the center of the contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, in fact, is a contrast between a holiness which is terrifying and unapproachable and a holiness which is welcoming, cleansing, and healing. That's the distinction that's made here in this passage. That's what he wants them to know. There's a holiness available that is welcoming and cleansing and healing. And actually, towards the end of this passage, uh, the author of Hebrews wants them to know that that's not just a holiness that cleanses them, but one day God will cleanse and renew everything. He says there's going to be a shaking. Um, and that's a little, little strange but he says, there's going to be a shaking, and heaven and earth will be shaken. He says, heaven and earth will be shaken in such a way that everything that is transient and temporary and secondary and second rate will fall away. And that which belongs to the new creation, that which belongs to Jesus, that which is rooted in the resurrection will continue eternally and will dwell with the Lord. Um, Another way that the author puts it is he says, think of God like a fire. That God is a consuming fire. And uh, that's a, a helpful image. Because in the Old Testament, we find that God's presence is often fire. And it's fire that, that cannot be withstood. I mean, think about it. Um, if you, if you were to go out and there was a giant fire, a, a, a blazing inferno, and let's say you had a cup of water, and you tried to throw your cup of water on the blazing inferno, you know what would happen? <laughs> that water would be consumed. 
it would be gone. It just can't stand up to that. But there's this idea, in, and it actually is rooted in how God does reveal himself in the Old Testament. There's an odd moment, and it points ahead to, I think, where this author is going. There's this odd moment with a burning bush. Again, it's not weird that there's a bush that's on fire. That happens. What's weird is that there's a bush that's on fire, and it's not consumed. The fire is consuming, but it is not destroyed. And the New Testament picks up that idea. And it says, God indeed is a consuming fire. But for those who are found in Christ, you're like this burning bush. You're ablaze. Things are aflame, but they're not destroyed, not consumed. Actually, instead of destroying us or consuming us, what this fire does is cleanse and reveal and refine and renew. And so the encouragement here is to press into that work, press into what God has now done in Christ and what he has available for his people. Don't go back to Sinai when Zion is right here and you're invited to go up that mountain. So the author goes on to, he finishes up, we're in the next to last chapter of Hebrews, but look at verse 28. He's trying to think through the application of this. Um, Hebrews is not known for being very practical. Um, Hebrews is like a theology nerd, uh, enjoying Bible study. But verse 28 says, therefore, how do we respond to all this? Well, therefore, let us be grateful so adoration, gratitude, uh, grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Um, which, by the way, should put to the, the fact that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken should meet us in our worry and our anxiety and our fear. Because you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The things that worry you will be shaken and fall away, but you will dwell with God forever. The author says, Then let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. What we take from this is the invitation to worship. And to worship with full awareness of the intimacy God invites us into, as well as the uh, immense glory that is his with awe and with reverence. Um, between services, I was talking with Deacon Joe, and he reminded me that there's a large difference between fear and awe. When you have fear and you're afraid of something, it's going to repel you. If you see something that's scary, you're going to go in the opposite direction. But if you have awe you're actually going to be able to appreciate the glory and you're going to be able to actually be drawn in and drawn closer. I think that's the big distinction between Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai, you had God's glory and it was uh, blazing and it was immense, but it was something that you stepped back from. Whereas in Mount Zion, you have an invitation for awe and reverence you don't lose respect. You don't lose the glory. You don't lose the immensity, but you're invited in even though God is glorious, 
because of all that he has done in and through Jesus. And you count it a privilege just to be there. I don't know the last time you were on a mountain or on a mountaintop. I think I mentioned last week that I spent uh, some time this summer in Colorado. And you go up to these mountaintops, and it's amazing. And it's glorious. And you go, I cannot believe that I get to be here. And I get to see this. And if you can think of the favorite place you've been, a place of glory and beauty, of transcendence and eminence, and go, man, this place is so amazing. I can't believe I get to be here. Then how much more when we think about Mount Zion? How much more when we think about the very presence of God Almighty? How much more when we realize that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken and will dwell with God forever? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.